0: hello and welcome to episode 202 of wb40 the weekly podcast with me matt Ballantyne and chris weston well we are back again i think the summer has now ended again it's it dallied with us for a little bit but it seems to be returning
1: to normal now that's all good chris how are you i'm very well matt i have returned to the old faithful microphone after a experiment with a different one last week and then we got complaints although let's face it we had technological woes and had to arm wrestle with Squadcast and all sorts of things last week so i think we can be excused a little bit of sound quality issues can't we
0: yes it was a bit of a nightmare last week it's the first one back after the summer and everything went wrong but i managed to you know salvage something out of the wreckage of what could have been. well everything
1: went wrong except for the sparkling chat
0: well yes ex- indeed so that's good anything particularly highlighting in your week just gone
1: well, I had a really good conversation with. I think actually, was it? Molly? we, we just going? Kind of was that a bit further ago? Anyway, I had a good conversation with some people about transform transforming IT department. That was quite interesting, only because every time you get to talk to a bunch of people who you know what they're talking about, it's it's interesting. And but since then, really, it's been work We're getting ready for this uh, summit that we've got in October and talking to a bunch of different people in different parts of the world. So it's been it's been fun, but it's been not. Well, I wouldn't say it was rem- anything remarkable matt how about yourself
0: i went to manchester i think as i said I know, last week did, yes. i went to the housing 2021 conference it was weird to be in it was in the, the manchester the former railway station that's now the big convention exhibition center and it was strange to be in what is actually quite an odd exhibition of exhibitors really because you've got everything in there from amazon cloud search to doors i mean one would make some joke about from windows to doors but that would be terrible so i wouldn't possibly go there and uh, so it was also extremely cool. The exhibition itself, talking to exhibitors there, I reckon like half, maybe even a third of the usual attendance. Definitely, on the, wow. I went on the last day, and there were definitely most of the time more people on the stand of punters, which is not a good state of affairs for a conference
1: and it well there were there were there were like 300 speakers on the website Matt, that, that and there were more
0: speakers have... than yeah exactly i know it's it, it it was mostly speakers and exhibitors and then a few other people but you know it's nice i got to spend some time with my uh, new technical architect is based in northwest which is good did a little panel thing which is interesting I'm not a huge audience for it because got to see a spectacular mugging with follow-up chase involving big street furniture being thrown over and the guy who was giving pursuit managing to leap over them like championship
1: steeplechaser it
0: was amazing that's yeah that, that's all. exactly so yeah it was, you know it's good nice to get out of out of the usual
1: i guess the problem fun. with the the problem with the events and this is something obviously we face in our business but but the problem events even in country as we would say where where you only have people coming from the uk it's a long way From a lot of places to go to Manchester and that means you've got to go on a train and that means you've got all of the you know issue around you know is it am I gonna get sat next to some coughing lunatic maybe not even wearing a mask and all that kind of thing and people just don't want to do it do they
0: no I think that's that's quite a large amount of it actually the travel is weird and it does feel quite unnatural to be in anything like close proximity to complete strangers who for the most part didn't seem to be completely complying with the mask wearing regulations so yeah i think probably it's going to take quite a while for people to have the if they ever will have the coverage go out and go to that we will see i have lots of people i know from my um past who work in the industry for one reason or another so i do hope it does sort itself out some way because there's a lot of people rely on it yourself included to a great extent i guess Well, indeed. Um, so yeah we'll see where it goes but anyway it was good to uh Good to see some stuff, a few bits have been good. Anyway, on this week's show, just on the cusp of us getting into a long run of fabulous guests, there's no guest tonight, so we are bringing you an episode of Ask WB4, where we've asked the audience you for questions that we can explore over the course of the rest of this show. So we've got lots of questions, time to get on with it.
1: So in no particular order, in uh, in terms of when we receive these questions or even whether we think they're a good question or not, we'll start off with this one. And it's uh, we've talked about this before, Matt. What will the longer-term impact on younger people, grads, or first jobbers from the pandemic and changing working styles be? You know how how is that going to play out.
0: I think before we get into the destiny of any of this, trying to predict the future is a mugs game, I'm not going to do that. One of the things about this question though that increasingly, and actually the panel debate last week about it came up again, is that I think it's very difficult for those of us who were socialised into the world of work in the 90s and even two thousand to conceptualise what it is to go to work out of university, in 2021 20, and beyond. Because the world has changed amazingly. And so we can make a lot of presumption about the. F- There's no way possible these young people would be able to get to understand what it is to work. And that's based on our own experience of starting work. And for me, that's nearly 30 years ago. And I can just about remember what it was like to start working. And I can also remember that I had an email account, but I wasn't allowed to send any into the internet thing because we didn't really know what that was yet. I watch my kids who will play Minecraft or various games on Roblox and have a phone going at the same time where they've got a group chat going with their mates and they're 10 and 11. They're quite adept to deal with omnichannel ways of working and collaborating. They're probably better at it than most people that you or I work with today. And so I think that the, the more important question here is what is it that we who don't know what it is like to start working in these more geographically dispersed ways of working, we don't know what to learn to work, how do we need to think differently about what we do to be able to help make sure that people can integrate with teams, with their colleagues, with their organisation, understand and pick up the culture of the organisation, all that stuff, without there being a risk on going. In. That's, that's the thing that I think we really think.
1: Yeah, I completely agree, actually. And and that, uh, that point about kids being used to collaborating and, you know, whether it's Call of Duty or Minecraft or whatever, um, collaborating with people remotely and essentially fitting into a culture of a team, learning about, you know, how, how to work with other people. They do that already. You're absolutely right. The question and the hand-wringing did come from us who learned our working skills and styles in a different way. And it's partly about what we, because we can't conceive of how it is to not do it that way being, having not you know having not lived through that how are we going to effectively pass on what I will I will refer to as our wisdom given that once you get to a certain age you've got to you've got to refer to your wisdom and you know how do you pass that on whether it's you and and able to do it able to do it effectively if you are if you're of the belief that you can't do it unless you're you know down the pub with somebody so that's the that, as you say you know i think that that's that's going to be the question
0: and there's plenty of working environments where going down the pub after work was never a thing anyway i've been thinking quite a bit about the the nature of the kind of out of town center office environment a lot of discussion about people going back to the office I presumed i think it going back to offices in city center locations where there's the better and whatever these god awful business parks where nobody is able to do anything other than go to the grotty canteen because there's nowhere else to go and that you are stuck there and you have to drive there because there's transport and then you have to park on the verge because there's actually enough parking space for all the people who are employed there and 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 i think working remotely would be so much better than that surely so there's a i don't know there's a there's a bunch of other questions for me that are assumptive of certain types of office certain types of environment where actually again not that opportunity anyway on with the next question so as a number of businesses push for a return to normal while well, some recognize benefits what can be done if anything should be done maintain the increased personal autonomy many have discovered over the last
1: oh that is a good question and i think there are parallels with this what we just talked about in as much as people have learned to maybe be more self-sufficient i certainly remember back in the first half of the pandemic and the lockdowns if you remember the way we had the remote work toolkit that, that that i was involved in back then and we and we we had a lot of talk around how people are coping with lockdowns we found that people were actually forming little self-help groups a bit like you know if you're in the office and um somebody says you know why does my why does my screen turn yellow before you go to the it service desk you'll probably ask you the person sitting next to you or, or if it's a system you all use if it's a if it's a purchase ledger team, they'll kind of help each other with the fact that, OK, I know how to do that. And this is how that works. So you, they don't necessarily go through what you more call, might call official channels to to solve problems. And people were doing that at home. So the question really is those managers and support teams and all those other people that used to interact with people on a, on a certain basis when they were in the office, when they were together, do they really need to go back to that do they need to revert to type in now or you know as, as as people go back to offices more regularly is that something that must happen because at the end of the day autonomy is something that which is kind of granted and encouraged by by your manager in my view it's something that you should be yes you can you can kind of take it's great to take an initiative and and uh, work it autonomously but in the end of the day if you haven't got a manager or a or a structure that can support that you're going to be pushing against some fairly on you know unfortunate forces so it can managers say okay i can see what's happened i can change my management style i didn't need to check in with that person so often or actually i found i did have to check in with that person more often how am i going to manage that in future so maybe it's more of a management question than a than a how are people you know going to increase their you know, or or, or maintain their personal autonomy what do you think
0: i do wonder the extent to which what we've done is just taken what weren't great ways of working in the office and transferred them all into teams or zoom and that actually if we want to really understand how we're able to uh, give people more autonomy we need to understand how we need to change how we work a lot of the working in organizations today actually stem back decades and decades and decades and how many of them still are things that were generated from the ways in which offices without computers operated I mean even as far back as in the, the 19th century and you know the idea of meetings with minutes and agendas and the idea of the way in which distribute memos any of these things the, the whole idea about being able to distill everything to documents and still for many organizations that you know the primary form of communication is a document formatted to be printed even though printing may never happen and i i just don't think we've even started to scratch the surface about how it might change how it operates to be able to get rid of some of that legacy of centuries of the ways in which offices have worked
1: but it will evolve won't it right you know as you say memo i remember i remember once upon a time working at a place where there was a manager who was you know you tend to at least one memo a day and of course in order to do so somebody would go to the photocopier and photocopy you know 40 copies or 50 copies of this piece of paper and then Everybody would be handed this memo. Now, nobody ever, there was never a meeting, I don't think, where anybody says, right, we're going to stop memos now. It kind of happened where, where suddenly you stop getting these pieces of paper and you started getting these passive-aggressive emails instead. But it's an evolution, and it kind of happens without you noticing often.
0: But a lot of it is, because I would say that an email is just basically the digital embodiment of a memo. Nobody ever asked whether it actually is memos in an indicator. Or email, or whatever else. I mean, I think people are moaning a little less about email now because we've got far more meetings to go to, which is
1: a massively progressive step forward. Well, that's the uh, that's the way that's the way, isn't it? You have to be busy all the time. That's that's the rule. So you know, your, your your diary will fill up. Okay, let's change. Let's move it to a slightly different subject. So this is this is quite an interesting question, really, because it talks to the way that projects are run now and the fact that. I know waterfall had a certain a certain uh, cadence to it so it is agile making it harder for developers to become architects wow that is i think a very interesting question the first thing i
0: would say is a lot of architects are people who were uh, developers who needed to be promoted and whether that made them good architects or completely separate question. And well the, when you say
1: needed to be promoted, do you mean they really wanted to be promoted or they needed to be promoted to get them away from being developers because they were yeah, terrible I mean developers? both
0: of those both both of those conditions may well apply. I think that the 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 whole idea of solutions architecture, software architecture, technical architecture is challenging because I don't think there are agreed definitions about any of it. I certainly know what the value is. For me, it's about having people who can think about the longer term decision making or the longer term impact to decision making today when it comes to making decisions about software. And in that context, I think Agile can make architecture very different, let alone generating lots of architects challenging because that continual cycle of building software, building software, building software, building software. Building software doesn't really give the space that waterfall projects used to somebody to design them and because it, it it's harder to find that space within those projects i think it will be harder for people to be able to spot where those skills can
1: be developed i i hear what you say i think i do think it is possible for architects but that that again that the question you raised about what is an architect so. A lot of the architects I've worked with—they were never developers and would never have made a developer. They weren't. They didn't really have a coding bone in their body, right? They—they they were quite good at imagining solutions, you know. In terms of okay, well, you want to achieve this, this, and this. Well, we have the, you know, we know about this solution which we have in our portfolio, but it doesn't do what that thing that you want. But we do have this and whatever. So, they're quite good at kind of make making a jigsaw puzzle out of components. And of course, interested in technology and interested in things that are out there that might be able to plug gaps or be the next thing. So from a solutions architect, you know, there was certainly that in in mind. And then you do have the more sort of technical architects, which do come from a, a, a dev background. But I think then if you're able to when you're involved in an agile project. The end goal and the on what you're building towards is not like if you're a senior dev at least if you're if you're a junior dev just working on components it might be slightly different but if you're a senior dev you you probably have architecture skills and you're building architecture skills all the time anyway because you are you are considering the way that this, this product is being built you are thinking about how uh, you are thinking about the future in terms of should we build this You know, should we build it this way or should we build it that way? Should we have this data structure or that data structure, depending on what the future requirements might be? So I think it's I think half the problem actually is that if you're going to get to that point where you're a senior dev, you are way too valuable to go into pure architecture. And, uh, you know, and that's maybe part of the problem. You need to you need to be potentially a senior dev who's maybe reached the limit of their coding capability which is entirely possible and i know i know one very good architect who i you know I, i've got lots of time for and i know he was a developer but he'd be the first to say he wasn't the greatest developer he was nowhere near as good a lot of the younger guys that came up underneath him but that's why he moved into the architecture role because he knew enough that he could he could talk to the, the developers in you know and and in a, in a way that, that held their interest and was, was relevant to them but He'd, he'd, he'd sort of taught himself and then gone on to learn more more of those architecture skills so i do think it's an issue whether it's a big issue or whether architecture just has to change to match the fact that the the, the development development cycles are so much faster and the tools that we you're using the cloud native tools etc are more componentized in many ways i think i think maybe architecture will just evolve when when, when it comes to that technical side the
0: other sorry, the other question that this brings for me, uh, which we'll just leave hanging, though, is actually for organisations of a certain size and scale, should they be focusing on just having architects rather than developers? because if actually mostly what you're doing is integrating software of one sort or another, um, which for small to medium sized organisations is really crucial. It's often that you don't get architects until you've got a certain heft of developers actually get rid of, you know, turn that around and say, start by building up your architects and then work out if you need developments and gaps. And that's one of the things that I've been battling with over the last couple of years. Anyway, next question, a number of the big tech firms have uh, announced over the last few weeks they're delaying their return to the office until next year, till 2022, which will be, by that time, people have been
1: working for, for over two years. The question is, is it fair to say this job? Child- yes. I think it is fair to say it's permanent in in as much as the genie's out of the bottle, right? And the only reason it wasn't out of the bottle is because the, there were enough people who said, it's just too dangerous, it's too much of a, of a risk, I don't want to try it today, We're well, maybe next week, right? And and suddenly it had to happen. And for many people, they found that they could work remotely just as effectively as, as otherwise. And of course, for many development teams, in particular, you know, this has been a was just a way of working for some time you know if you wanted to get on with do something you don't sit in the office because you go into a development team office you, you know over the last few years what you'll probably find is most people sitting with noise cancelling headphones on so that they're not getting disrupted right they <laughs> they go into the office and then and then do everything they can not to get interrupted by any so that's kind of it is one of those genie out of the bottle moments i think and yes i would say it is permanent although of course it doesn't work for everybody it doesn't work for every job And we'll see, you know, some to and froing, no doubt, over the coming year. What do you think?
0: Yeah, it feels like it's, I mean, nothing is permanent. I think it's a significant point of inflection, maybe. And I was just trying to think, have there been other examples of these kind of inflection points, this sort of a sharp change in direction in information technology? I struggle to think of any, I guess... There was some stuff when Microsoft suddenly realized that security by design might be important in the mid 90s, but that was kind of in the supply side of it. It feels a bit like, I tell you what, just having seen the 20th um, anniversary of it, it feels a bit like the sort of inflection point. that it, it has been a change in the same way that there was a change in the way in which airline and the air industry treated security after the events of the 11th of September, 2001 and that that has maintained and sustained and that you know, domestic flights in the US you used to be able to use like buses and there was a whole bunch of security that has stayed with us for two decades, some of which you could argue is theatre, but but nonetheless has actually meant that that hasn't got thought about air traffic and air transport differently as a result of that. This is bigger, but it's at that sort of level of, it's a, a change in direction and
1: we're not going to immediately... Well, let's um, move on to the next question, which is definitely related, which is what do businesses need to do to make sure the inevitable hellish hybrid meetings are as good as they can. And you've had a, some experience of this only today, man
0: Only today, yes. It's an interesting question. It sort of comes back to my point earlier about our business is actually changing how they operate. The, the challenge ahead of me before this morning's workshop that I ran was that I had a group of maybe 20 people in total, and I knew about half a dozen of them weren't going to be able to come to the offices to work in the room. Uh, and one of those people was me with various complications. So I needed to be able to run a workshop. I needed to be able to bring people together because we're just at that position where you needed to do that, getting people together. But I also needed to make sure that some key people were engaged and involved in, and I knew that we couldn't get everyone to the same thing. So it was a chance to be able to just experiment with what we were able to do with technology and the ways of working and see what would happen. So the workshop we designed over uh, a couple of days. And the the crucial part was we needed to get the involvement and engagement of people who were in different physical places. We needed to make sure the people in the, the main meeting were getting the value from all being physically together and not create a sense of exclusion. So the first thing was we spent a bit of time on Friday getting the room ready and actually spending time putting whiteboards in particular places and putting stuff on the whiteboards taking photographs of what was on the whiteboards which enabled me to be able to then create a get buzzwordy about it a sort a of digital twin of what was going to be in the and then what we did was I hosted the meeting remotely we had in terms of the technical setup in the room it was a largest fairly flexible space there was a projector and screen we ran the session in teams. And then we had an owl conferencing. It's a clever little thing with a 360 degree camera, picks up who's speaking, zooms to them when they're speaking in the room and has good speaker, good quality mics on and kick the meeting off an intro in com, showed stuff on the screen that was the digital version of the thing that was on the whiteboard behind people there was a particular there's two parts of it there's one exercise that was using a visual metaphor and the second part of it basically a timeline to get started identifying tasks much more than traditional project kind of thing and we did the intro i had two facilitators in the room and then at the point at which the work started we split into three groups two groups in the room and the one online the one online then we kind of disconnected from the the physical room on Teams. And then we ran our part of the session in Miro. So using the whiteboard sticky notes and whatever in Miro. And then at the end of each section, we come back into the whole group. We could give a kind of feedback of that part of it. I had a back channel with the two facilitators as well. So there's a couple of things that came up that they prepped me for so that I knew what was in the feedback session. And it, as a session went, I think was, no better or no worse than if everybody had been in the room. It was no better or worse if everybody had been online. So that was quite a triumph, I think. I think people in, in both environments felt a sense of inclusion with it, but it involved an awful lot more planning and preparation. It involved a number of facilitators, not just one. It involved an awful lot of effort to facilitate remotely because it is just more emotionally and you know mentally draining because you don't get feedback in the same way. It wasn't bad. And it also, I think, was dependent on me actually knowing everybody because quite a lot of the time I need to recognize people by their voices because the owl camera thing is fine on a desk in the middle of a relatively small meeting, a table in the middle of a meeting. It's not quite good enough to be able to extend out to a large-ish workshop. But overall, I think the conclusion is if you put the effort you can create a reasonable, you know, shared experience where you've got people in one environment and one in the other. But you have to have access to the room beforehand. You have to be able to set things up beforehand. You have to have other people to facilitate with you. You have to have a reasonable trust and understanding of how the tech works. You know, I've I've got a reasonable amount of um, prior knowledge with pulled that off. I'm not the best physician in the world, but I've done a lot of facilitation. So there's one other question actually that came up as well which is what we seen seen resurgence professional meeting facilitators and or training for everyone to up their game if we don't hybrid sessions are going horrid
1: do you think there was anything in that session given the number of facilitators you had and given the extra time that you spent planning it that went better than it might have done if you'd all just rocked up into a room i think if we'd
0: put similar amount of preparation into just an in-room session it would have been better in the room if that makes sense. So for the amount of effort that was involved, we got something as good as we could have prepared slightly. You know, I wouldn't have had to have gone into the room to prep it beforehand and then transcribe the stuff into so It's quite mechanical stuff that I needed to set up. It wasn't, you know, intellectual stuff. But nonetheless, I had to have a room that wasn't going to be mucked around with between Friday and ten o'clock on Monday, which in many offices, you can't guarantee that because somebody else will be in there first and have cleared the whiteboard. So there's that kind of element of it, I think. You know, having that sort of level of access is the big challenge. Mm.
1: Yeah, that's, it, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting one. But I think you're right. I mean, there, there's there is more for that. But then, I guess the other on, on from the other angle that there are people that can go to those meetings that previously couldn't have gone to and that might be, be all the value might be there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's the sort of session that if it had been done. Prior to the pandemic, the people who couldn't be, there would have been fewer people unable to come to, sorry, fewer people who weren't able to, because everybody went into the office every day. But if anybody couldn't have made it, they'd have been excluded and it just would not have worked. And we've got now, people are happy using Miro, which they wouldn't have been to 24 months ago. People are happy using Teams which months ago. We've invested in things like the Aldo, which we didn't have to. So there's a bunch of other stuff that's gone on. And part of it is technical, but it's also about familiarity with some of those products now as well which is really okay okay another change of direction which is the way this particular game works what can or should those of us working in it and it adjacent roles do when faced with debates around employee surveillance and performance monitoring hr don't have a great record of smart it solutions this could go badly wrong bit of a subjective opinion thrown in at the end there but uh, what do you make of that what sh- what should we think what how would should we be turning up into debates about employees
1: well look i, I guess in any uh, debate there's always an ethical angle isn't there there's a there's a there's a point where you will so for example if somebody says to, to you okay we want a system that tells us to collect certain information about about people you can say well actually that's going to break gdpr rules and you might you know and and at the end of the day then the company's got to make a decision whether they want to abide by the law or not but if you're still told to do it and say well don't worry about that we'll we'll worry about gdpr you just provide the solution then you've got a professional you so it's a matter of professional pride whether whether you are willing to accede to that or not but that's a legal thing really and, and and that so that has a certain amount of weight to it. When it comes down to something which is a little bit more debatable, I guess a bit more moot in terms of whether it's right or it's wrong, then it's then I guess the way I would look at this is as somebody in IT, one of the things you can get involved in and have a great, you have, have a certain amount of, of credence in really, or at least you should, is is the, what are you measuring and why? Because that's that's what we do in IT. You know, we collect and we we manage data, we we process data, and we we present data, and we present it. We 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 do get involved in you know what's the point of this metric now are we measuring the right thing and that would be the angle that I would look at in this if I'm asked to do things like performance monitoring and surveillance I'd be asking you know what what are you going to get out of this data is this is this information going to change what you do is it going to uh, allow you to manage these people more effectively and and go down that road that's the because a lot of this information is there just because you can do it and. It's not necessarily something you should do just because you can.
0: Yeah, I think one of the pieces of work that we've been doing over the last few months is creating a framework, decision making about ethics to artificial intelligence and an AI application services, whatever. And I think if you don't have that framework, it's more difficult. So, from a technology leadership position, one way to be kind of preempting to do work with an organization to set up that kind of ethical framework that goes just beyond saying it's legal or it's not it's just because it's legal to do. I think the other thing, though, is actually the extent to which this is coming in without anybody even realising. So some of the stuff that Microsoft, there has been debate around and the, the ability to be able to use numbers to record activity and then from that be able to derive meaning, whether that meaning is meaningful or not i think that's the bigger challenge ahead which is actually what are we not realizing that by default is enabled that we should really be turning off and i think there's a there's quite a a discussion to be had there about what the vendors are doing and and how we are making sure that we're keeping up to date with what vendors have just
1: rolled out with that is a very good point that is very okay let's move on and we might be able to get this uh, wb40 into 40 minutes you never know we have a question about diversity and inclusivity so it says diversity and inclusivity is talked about a lot within organizations and sometimes this is more lip service than action what can we do to make a difference even if our clients or employers don't seem
0: get involved get educated understand more about what's going on and then find ways to be able to to help i mean this is something i from my massive position of privilege and that the last couple of years has been a conscious exercise for me looking at trying to understand more about the needs of different groups that I'm not a part of so that I can see how I might be able to help. So looking at that from ethnicity, from uh, gender, from ability or disability, sexuality, and this goes on. I'm just trying to understand more and to try to be able to challenge my own prejudice that have been built up from being a white middle-class man who has never really had to worry about. Much. And that might be trying to make a difference in your own organization. I think it's interesting things that like actually should you get involved in diversity, inclusion, network organization if they're not closed to positions of or people in positions of privilege. I, I'm, I've I'm been working with that D&I group. I'm not a member, it doesn't feel right to me for me to be a member of something um, when I'm to a great extent part of the problem. But I have been working with maturing some of what I've been doing with things like Beyond Equality. And that's the sort of thing that I think is you can help is so charities like Beyond Equality who are doing what they can to be able to help raise awareness of issues with young men, boys and young men in school, universities. And being able to do my bit there and not take part in panels if if there's no diversity in the panel and do what you can.
1: Yeah, I think also um, th- there is only so much you can do if your organisation is really not interested in it. But you can, what you can do is you can work with suppliers and recruiters and you know partners who are who have it as as part of their agenda, and that will. Well, first of all, it supports them. It supports those partners and suppliers and etc. Who might be who, who are looking at this and taking it seriously so it gives them a confidence and it gives them some of your some of your money that you can spend with them rather than uh, a company that isn't doing it if you're with recruiters who actively encourage having you know a diverse shortlist and things and have candidates and actively go out to to build lists of candidates that they can then uh, provide to organizations when they're recruiting you know that that's that's part of what you can do really i think in an organization that isn't actively managing that
0: the other thing to look at is uh, the concept of allyship which is um a bit of a buzzword but actually looking into how can you help rather than but actually hindering again beyond equality but a half day called around allyship that explores some of those ideas so i'll put a link to that on the website
1: at wbpodcast.com
0: an allied question to that last one what actions can we take to encourage more girls to pursue a career in
1: stem well, I think first, I mean, it's it, it, it's difficult and something that I've I've been interested in in it for a while. I wonder quite what I can do to inspire young girls to go into STEM, really, because I'm not much of a role model for young girls and um, young women, being not being neither nor an old older one. And uh, but I think part of what we can do is stop calling it STEM and stop um, saying you going you know, come and work in science and technology and engineering because so many of the if you know if you think about the number of people we need and i mentioned a um in the chat today and i bet i well I, this came up in a discussion i had a couple of weeks ago we had a we had a, a talk at a, a, com, a summit by, a couple of years ago from somebody at disney and they amongst other things and to cut to the long story quite short talked about the fact that when disney were making cartoons or animated movies in the 50s and 60s and 70s it was all artists you know drawing painstaking many many cells to make an animation then one day somebody came along and said we could do this by computer and that was all very well and that was very exciting but as soon as it took off and it became almost the the way they did it they were hiring far more technologists than, than artists and the artists were essentially elbowed out because to make the the movies you needed technological skills the tools were rudimentary they were very good for, the, for their day but essentially the artists would come up with some with some sketches and some ideas and then the 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 technology technology animators would go away and deal with it, but they would look at the di- diagrams and they would say, well, we we can't make the arm move like that, you know, or we can't make that, those clothes hang like that, and they would be frustrated with the artists, and the artists would be frustrated with the technologists because they couldn't realise their their vision, and we're now in a space where actually the technologists are all in the back room, and the technology is good enough that you can be an artist and render your imaginings using the technology as you want to do once upon a time. So there's that evolution of technologists being involved and then artists being involved. And I suspect that's happening in a lot of different technologies where you don't have to be interested in the technology so much to make it work. But you do need loads of other skills in order to make it work. And I'm not saying for a minute that, you know, girls uh, aren't as good as as boys at, at the technology stuff. But culturally, we have a problem right now that they don't want to do it. They see it as very one-dimensional and it's just not interesting to them. So we have to change that culture. But in the meantime, let's think about all those other things that go on around technology that we can get people to get involved in without, without them worrying about the tech. And then maybe in 15 or 20 years time, it won't matter because most of this stuff will be, it will all be a different mix of, of skills and tech anyway, rather like the Rather like the cartoons maybe i wish i had a really good answer for this but i don't
0: well I, th- I think that that core bit about not talking about stem i think is really interesting there's a great book i read last year called broadband by claire evans and it's about the the mostly untold history of the women involved in the evolution of computing that led to the internet and there's some you know the ada Lovelace starting point and there are some names you've heard of and lots that you haven't one observation in that book is that in the 1950s the but computing was an industry that was, women were hugely involved in it up until the 50s and then there was a conference one specific conference i think that took place in the united states where it was basically that said we are going to define computing and the argument in the book is that was a pivot point for the industry of which it became mailed up because it was said to be engine inherently seen as male activity and up until that point certainly if you think about it, like bletchley Park, and whatever, there were loads of women working on what happened there the earliest kind of big experiments beyond the, the second so there is something about the positioning of stem of itself that is probably not helping um, and then don't even get me started on steam which then boils everything else in humanity down to one letter a to be able to maintain a CRAP acronym, which for me is the epitome of bad things. That's another thing. We were also asked about how does the, with the, all this promotion of STEM and at the same time we're seeing funding costs for the arts and humanities in the UK and question about how important are the latter in digital stuff. Sorry that again, sorry. <laughs> it's all right. So we were also asked with all of the promotion of STEM and yet at the moment we're seeing big cuts being made in education and the arts, social sciences and humanities. the impact of that and how important is that
1: lattice of stuff in the world of digital well i think we've we've kind of talked about that haven't we a little bit in as much as the world of of technology is turning into the world of digital where where the technology is kind of abstracted away and that was pretty much what i always thought digital if you're going to come up with a definition of digital my i thought that was it you know it was was technology that had got to the point where you didn't need to be a technologist to use it and i think if you look at the way that things are being automated away in terms of in terms of some of the some of the, the grunt work in, in in many cases, it's those I don't know what you call them soft skills. I don't you really like that phrase, but I can't think of a better phrase right now. But those those ability to use that that the ability to read a room, for example, is far more important. Now than it when it has has been for a while simply because a computer can't read a room. I mean a computer can barely tell you or you know, have an idea of somebody's whether somebody's happy or sad on a picture, and it's rudimentary whereas though human skills are more important now when you once you start to accept that, then the the art of understanding human skills, all of those king things those sort of social sciences humanities, which is essentially that it's about understanding what what people do why they do it and how they do it become far more important so i think it is something we've missed over the years simply because there's been so much of the tech stuff to do now there's less of that to do maybe there's more room for that. what do you think
0: uh well as as i've maybe said once or twice before a sociology to spend industry absolutely and you know i do i do still think there's real value in that thinking actually about information technology as a social science rather than as an engineering because mostly it's about being able to put semantic meaning onto a complex world, but to be able to maintain that it is complex rather than trying to make complicated things simpler. And I I just, I mean, I, the data architect that I've appointed were, um, recently, fantastic to do this. And it's, I don't think any coincidence, he's a social scientist by background. And it's about being able to classify and being able to, you know, things like librarianship is actually at the core of uh, many of the challenges that we have at the moment. Not you know, software engineering. And they're very, very different disciplines.
1: Well, I think a librarianship is an engineering discipline, frankly. Well, it depends how big the books are.
0: Okay, quick rapid fire questions towards the end. Is Clubhouse dead?
1: Well, I don't hear anything about Clubhouse. Not that I was ever on it because it was an Apple thing.
0: I think probably team. Oh, I must stick in your it, craw to say that. And it really does. But I think out of all of this, from the, the abomination that was Skype for Business.
1: But I, I don't hear about it anymore. So maybe it is out of zoom teams google meet who is the winner
0: microsoft core product has i think probably stolen the march on everybody else the challenge they will have though is how they make sure that they don't just add more and more and more to it and it becomes so unusable that people shift something else and that probably is in our podcast on the way
1: well some are i think i mean the question was asked on the with the question around commuting it was 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 a big um, driver for people listening to podcasts so Has that shifted? And of course, yeah. I mean, if you take away the time that people would have traditionally used to listen to podcasts, then then maybe so. Maybe there's still uh, room left for high quality broadcasting on the digital medium. That like WB40, Matt.
0: Yeah, I should think I should I should Coco. I actually up my podcast listening because I've started running and I listen to podcasts.
1: Yeah, well there we go, and 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 I go out for a walk in the morning before I start work, and essentially because if I don't, I'll just you know i'll stick to my chair and, and fuse to my chair and and i'll listen to podcasts when i do that so yeah maybe we'll still make time And we've got one more question which is going to be anathema to at least one uh listener of wb40 and the question matt is how much cheese is too much cheese
0: uh, and the answer to that mr phil huggins <laughs> thank you for asking is the one way to
1: oh and christmas is coming and we, we, we usually find out then don't we
0: absolutely there we go thank you to everybody who gave us the questions that's been a fascinating jaunt through and uh, we'll do it again at
1: some point soon
0: so that's it for this week thank you for joining us we have got a week off next week and then we start our cavalcade of guestage who have we got coming on the week after next
1: so next week we have i think we talked about him maybe last week a chris yap who is a uh, distinguished member of the Midlands IT community and has worked for Microsoft. He's worked in government. He's on various think tanks. He's a very, very bright guy. And we're going to talk to him about government and digital and you know public service, public sector, IT, and other things too.
0: Excellent. And then the week after that, the first week in October, can you believe it's almost October, is Olivia Gamblin, who is an expert in AI and data ethics and is actually the person we've been doing the work with recently to look Uh, How we establish an ethical framework for decision making for new technologies. Be a good chat too. With that um, pleasure, as always, Mr. Weston. Indeed, indeed. And we will uh, we will be back in two weeks' time, and we get into. Thank you for listening to WB40. You can find us on the internet at wb40podcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at WB40 Podcast. And you can find us and subscribe at all good podcasting platforms.